0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant with 27 years of service. And with me today, my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi, retired NYPD detective. How you doing, Phil?
1: I'm doing pretty good, Billy. And just a little side note, the pot of sauce is on the stove. She's frying them <laughs> cold, so I'm in good shape today. Well, of course, it's Sunday. What else
0: the hell yeah. did you expect in the Grimaldi house? You know, you got to right. get that sauce. You got to get that sauce cooking and simmering and get all the right ingredients in it. So it's just cooked to perfection.
1: Absolutely. She just uh, made me fill up the grated cheese jar. She threw the grated cheese into the meatballs. That's one of the secret ingredients. So I don't want to give too much away, but uh, we're looking <laughs> good so far. How do, you,
0: how do you stay thin, Phil? I, I'd like to know that secret.
1: Uh, I, I'm not so thin, but I could be a lot heavier. I'll, I'll tell you that. But it's about uh, you, know, you. Just got to control uh, my, o- my older days uh, when I was working out a lot. I would be able to eat two dishes of pasta on Sunday. Now I keep it to one, and uh, although it's hard, it's, it's really tempting. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to work out. You got to you know do things in moderation, and uh, hopefully we uh, live to see the uh, the elderly days of uh, of life. You know, in the 90s, 100%, I hope one hundred percent.
0: No, one hundred percent. I got up this morning, and it's—I always, on Sundays, I always fight with myself, with my conscience and me, on whether I'm going to go to the gym or not. And today, <laughs> I actually went out and I went to the gym. Usually, I, laziness, laziness good. prevails, and I'll be like, "Oh, I'll start the week on Monday, and I'll skip Sunday." But I—I I made it to the gym, so I—I I felt good that I that I got a little an hour workout in you know
1: yeah you know I, I started working out when i was like 15 years old and i'm sort of addicted to it now uh if i don't work out for a week i start really feeling it between guilt my body feels it so but the whole thing is you know the way life goes it's having the time to do it you know with uh with work and kids and all of that but uh i think the real key to that is what you did today you make it a priority do it first if you can in your day. And uh, once it's out of the way, you feel like there's a load off your back. Me, anyhow, that's how I feel. I, uh, I kind of put it on my shoulders, so to speak, uh, if I don't work out. So I try to get it done as usually, you know, during, you know, when the kids are home and during the week, a lot of times I'll have to go in the evening, but if you could go first thing in the day, get your workout done really puts a whole different spin on your day. You know,
0: that's absolutely true. You know, I I was talking about to you and a lot of other people, you know, everyone always like, wants to put life off, you know, oh, I'm going to do that in six months. I'm going to do it in a year. I'm going to do it in two years, three But you know something, there's never any guarantee that you're going to be around in six months or a year or three years or whatever. Everyone takes it for granted. I I sort of love that expression, um, you want to make God laugh, make plans, you know. And yeah. you see so much truth to that. And you know, I don't want to bore people with this picture here, but it, to me, that just says happiness and go into your happy place. And I went fishing in Isla Morada. It was fantastic. I enjoyed myself. And, you know, I didn't put it off. It costs a bit of money, but, you know, something was great. Look and at on, that on water the air, in
1: that picture, Billy. That water is just,
0: oh, oh, my God. It's, it's you don't see it anywhere else in the world. Maybe the Caribbean, you know. blue, beautiful, beautiful. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, look it's, at that. It's just incredible. And catching that fish there, I mean, it's not edible. It's a, um, you know, but it, but it fights like you it, you wouldn't believe it, you know. It fights for its life, and it's it's incredible. And then it, we have the pleasure, really, of letting him go. You know.
1: I, I was going to say, uh th- w- w- he was let go, obviously, back into, yeah. the, into the ocean. But what type of fish is that again, Billy? Why do I keep remembering sailfish? Um, sailfish. sailfish,
0: sailfish, yeah. Okay. And you know something, the captain tags them. For yeah. conservation reasons. And sure. then they get caught somewhere else and he gets notified, oh, the fish who tagged in Isle of just got caught in north of Miami, you know, so it's pretty
1: cool. That is know. pretty cool. That's a good thing. And you gotta you gotta realize that the conservation effort that started 40, 50 years ago, we're reaping the benefits of it now, where we have those beautiful waters. I mean, even here in the northeast, although the waters aren't the same color, but they're very, very clean and uh it's good to have the uh you know the natural environment where the fish are really plentiful. And uh, I just had some, <laughs> this was an edible fish. I had some fish over the weekend on uh, Friday night uh, at my cousin's restaurant, Ellen Beach b Spamoni Gardens in Brooklyn. Uh, they served black bass and they had it with a, uh, it was a strawberry crusted mango sauce. Oh my God. I had some leftover. I brought it to my wife. She tasted it last night. It was really, really good. Uh, you know, uh, Fridays during Lent, you don't eat meat. If you're Catholic, right. so I uh, I partake in uh, some fish Friday, but it was really really good, and they had uh, said it just came was in. That, on... Thursday. Phil? Was that sea bass? Yeah, like sea bass, they call yeah, it. Yeah, cuz I used bass, to catch them out in Montauk. We used to catch tons of them and it's a really good eating fish. Yeah. It's a great eating fish and the thing was it was so fresh. It came in on Thursday. It was probably swimming in the ocean on came in late Thursday. It was probably swimming in the ocean uh, Wednesday or Thursday, so it was very very good. It was delicious and uh just a little shout out to uh Joel from LMB and my cousin Lenny, uh they served such great uh, fish over the weekend. Well, that's
0: great. I just saw an article in the Times and they were one of the top 10 10- uh pizzas in in Manhattan the best pizza in Manhattan so i thought yeah way. you
1: know you know they're known for their pizza but they really have a tremendous uh menu in in the restaurant and the staff just to give you an idea uh Lenny was on uh Arthur Idala's radio show Friday evening uh he's got a thing called uh, i i think it's uh you ought to write dollar hour or something like that. But uh, Lenny went on and he did the macaroni minute. And believe it or not, of all things he was talking about, we had St. Patrick's Day Thursday and St. Joseph's Day was yesterday. So we were talking about the different foods and Ellen b on Thursday. They had naturally corned beef and cabbage. They also had shepherd's pie, but they made a uh, they made an Irish linguini. They took a fettuccine alfredo. I'm sorry, not Irish linguini, Irish fettuccine, and they took a regular uh, uh, you know recipe of fettuccine alfredo. They put uh, basil into the blender and they liquefied it with some oil and they threw it into the fettuccine. And obviously, the fettuccine turned green. So they did all of that stuff, and it was funny because. <laughs> (laughs) When I was there Friday, this this guy came in with a heavy Irish brogue. And I started talking with the guy. He goes, I bet you guys don't have uh – don't have uh, corned beef and cabbage. So I pulled up, I they have these little sheets, especially I go, there it is, my friend. They go, not only that, they had the uh, shepherd's pie. He goes, are you kidding me? He goes, I came here for Italian food. He goes, I had so much uh, corned beef and cabbage yesterday. And then I was telling him about the Greenland, uh, the green fettuccine. And the guy was just, uh, he was really taken back by it, you know, because here he is an Irishman with a brogue. <laughs> I think he was right out of Ireland, you know, Re- really, really friendly guy, cool guy. And uh, he was just so taken back that he was coming for an Italian dinner. And, uh, you know, we had the Irish uh, stuff on the uh, on the menu, so it was pretty cool.
0: That's great. You know, I just wanted to mention on a somewhat of a somber note, uh, this is a, a detective named Mordecai Disansky, and he just died at the age of fifty nine, I believe, of a of a heart attack. What a guy! Great detective. He was actually um, with the NYPD counterterrorism program. He was stationed over in um, Tel Aviv, Israel, and he was. Um, one of the experts on, you know, suicide bombers. And whenever there was a suicide bombing, he would go to the scene and investigate it. And not just that, just just an amazing guy. We had him on the show June 21st, 2021. And I had never met Mordecai before on the job. You know, New York City Police Department is such a big job. You know, and it's not uncommon not to meet people. Cause there's 35,000 cops, you know? And I met him just in doing our show and we immediately had, you know, a close bond, just being cops. That's the one thing that'll always bring you together. You speak the same language, you've experienced the same things. And I just want to play a little bit. He was on the show. Uh, uh just a, a great, a great personality, a great guy. I'm just going to play a little bit of it just for memory's sake. And, uh, for you folks that never heard Mordecai Nizhansky uh, speak, can we play a
2: little bit of this? first six months, you got to sign a permanent precinct. Now, the job said, okay, we have somebody in the 7-1. Why don't we put the next guy in the 6-6? Now, I didn't understand the hierarchy of the job is that if they offer you a contract and you say no, you might be in a little bit of trouble. So as it ended up, I, I actually said no to the 6-6. I said I'd like to go to yeah, You know,
0: Morty, Morty, just let me stop you there for one second. That's an Italian thing.
2: Because
0: <laughs> yeah. it, it is, because if you're offered something and you turn it down, they'll never ask you for another favor ever again, right out of Don
1: Colione's mouth. <laughs> Phil, is that not true? You're taking a good point, buddy. <laughs> a good point. But, you know, it's, it's funny. I was in NSU 12 in 1982 to 83. And you you got there probably what eighty three you said eighty three right? yeah. yeah yeah and that that I just to expand a little bit on what you said uh, that's a part of Brooklyn called Crown Heights where there was a large uh, Jewish community and Borough Park where he mentioned the six six priest and Borough Park is the other um, it's a large uh, population of uh, Jewish people in that area so uh, yeah and when somebody offered it's like the old saying don't look a gift horse in the mouth
2: you take it well they they were they were funny enough when I say funny they. Uh Said, well, where would you like to go? So, you know, I said, well, the Midtown Manhattan precincts, Midtown North, Midtown South. Uh, this, I didn't want to go to the 17th, too many fixes. So I wanted to go someplace handpicked. And again, I have the audacity as a first generation to sort of ask for this. So I always tell the story. It's a great story. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers Cornelius Deva, who was my NSU lieutenant. Speaking of about- uh, I'm standing on the corner of Nostranding Church in NSU.
0: Hey, uh, Morty! Someone in the chat, Mark Meckler. Hey, Morty! Oh,
2: he's my boy. Eighty-three twenty-four. Yeah, we were in the academy together. I love Mark.
0: Uh, just so, I just wanted to let you know that there's someone here that knows you.
2: <laughs> so, oh, so now everything's got to be on the up and up because he knows my whole history. Uh, so, Lieutenant Dever pulls up to me, and he's driving himself, and he has a sheet of your permanent assignments. And is it okay if I curse? Yes, so, yes. Yeah, and he goes, and he goes, Morty. Who would you fuck lately? And I go, excuse me, Lou, what do you mean? And he called he didn't call me Morty, he called me Munch. That was his affectionate term that he really liked me. So I go, Lou, I don't know. We went out to Bay Ridge last night after four to twelve. Nurses night, Peggy O'Neill's anything is possible. I don't I can't <laughs> tell you hundred percent what happened. So he goes to me. I ask him why are you asking that? He goes, Well, you know where you're going, your permanent assignment, which could be for your entire career. He goes, you're going to the 7-9. I go, 7-9? Where is that? He goes, you know, this side of Eastern Parkway, it's the other side of Eastern Parkway. I said, there's a world on the other side of Eastern Parkway? <laughs> so as the expression goes, you do or die and bed die when right to midnight. So- God
0: bless Mordecai Dysansky. May he rest in peace. Fidelis said Mortem.
1: Absolutely, Billy. And I got to tell you, what a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, what a true, uh, law enforcement officer. And unfortunately he's going to be sorely missed. Uh, the intelligence community, uh, is going to suffer, uh, a loss of, of, a tremendous asset. Um, you know, he worked overseas and, uh, he worked very closely with, uh, other, uh, counterterrorism agencies in Israel, as well as other places in the con- in the world to help our country and to prevent terrorism and, uh, He's going to be sorely missed. Rest in peace, Morty. Uh, We love you. And uh, just an unfortunate thing taken too soon.
0: You know, Phil, one of the amazing things is that here's this guy. He talks with a little bit of an accent. He apparently wore a yarmulke during roll call. But when you meet the guy, he's 100% cop. Oh, yeah. And he's so likable, such a a personality. And became a really great investigator,
1: too. So it's a, a big loss. Yeah, that story he was telling. I was in NSU twelve. Uh, either I think I was there either slightly before him or slightly after him. I don't remember him. We were NSU at the time was called the Neighborhood Stabilization Unit. Uh, it was working out at it as seven one priest, and it was where you went from the police academy. You went to NSU. It was sort of like a training unit. And, uh, I knew Cornelius ever and, uh, yeah, for him to have, uh, Cornelius was an old school guy and, uh, you know, he, he have this young Jewish cop wearing a yarmulke and, and Cornelius is an old school Irishman. I just think that he must've really made an impact on, uh, Cornelius that he was, you know, uh, lovable to him or gave him that nickname, you know? So, uh, it shows that he was really, like you said, he was all cop and, uh, you know, the, uh, whatever, uh idea Cornelius had in his head about him being Jewish or whatever, everything that just faded away. He saw he was a cop and he, he gravitated to him. And, uh, I just, uh, I think it shows a testament to who he was, uh, Morty and, uh, he'll be sorely missed. It's really sad. 59 years old. Uh, I, I don't know if, did he have a family as well, Billy? I think
0: he- uh, I know he has a family here, I believe in, in New Jersey. Uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. how, whether he has grown kids or not. I, I don't uh, know that much about him, but just- you know, and if for you folks listening, Phil and I never met him in person. We met him doing this show, but there's many people I've never met in person, but I feel like they've been on the show some multiple times and I'm like their friend just from meeting him on the show. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. And I met him on the show and I swore we were going to have a burger and a beer together. And unfortunately that, uh, that never happens, you know?
1: Yeah i tell you, I never met him as well face to face, but, uh, doing that show, just talking with him, he was so easy to get along with. It was really, really a pleasure. And, you know, we meet other guys from the job and, you know, that we've never met and, you know, they come on to the show and stuff and, and it's all well and good, but there was really a connection with him. I got to admit that. And we did talk about at the end of that episode. We did talk about getting together and unfortunately it didn't happen, but, uh, you know, uh, Condolences to his family. I know, uh, I I think he said he was married. I'm pretty sure he has children. So condolences to his family. God bless them and God bless him and uh, let him rest in peace.
0: 100%.
1: You know, folks, this coming week, Tuesday, Wednesday,
0: and Thursday, we have three big shows in a row. And on Tuesday, uh, we got this guy coming on, Lou Valoles, and he's um, an undercover ATF agent. And that's his book, Storefront Sting, right now. It's out there. It's sort of a a bestseller in the law enforcement genre. And uh, he's going to be on the show. I'm really excited. He talks about uh, how how the ATF does these things called Storefront Stings, where they actually open up stores and they attract the criminal element into these stores. You can see these guys. These are all ATF agents. They all look like bikers. Of course, they're undercover, so they have to – look and fit the part and he's going to come on and I don't want to give too much I don't want to do the show now, but he's going to come on and it's going to be like a really exciting show because first of all, we had the Dean of all undercovers on this show three times. And by the Dean of undercovers, I obviously mean Joe Pistone, AKA Donnie Brasco, probably the greatest undercover that ever lived. And I don't know if that's even debatable, but, uh, We've had him on the show three times. And just an amazing, amazing guy. And, you know, undercover work is really, da- really dangerous. You know, we used to have, of course, in NYPD, anti-crime, street crime. It's not exactly undercover. You're not infiltrating groups. You're not buying guns. You're not buying drugs. But you are in plain clothes. But undercover, you know, they're really risking their lives buying guns, drugs. Uh, stolen merchandise, vehicles, all kinds of things where they're so close and face to face with the criminal element. And the other added danger is if they do get made, someone sees that they are the, the police, that
1: could end your life right there hundred percent, Billy. And, you know, they're not infiltrating shoplifters or, you know, someone selling dime bags on a corner. They're infiltrating. uh, Usually it's uh, organized crime or these uh, drug cartels or whatever the infiltration may be. It's usually at a high level of criminal activity. And again, so when you're in that arena with people that are playing a game that's at a high level of criminal activity, uh, to kill someone who they believe could expose them or could be a rat, as they say in the, uh, in, in that life, uh, it's done with the flick of a switch. They'll they'll uh, wouldn't think twice about killing somebody, especially when that person could put them in jail for the rest of their life and bring down their criminal organization. So uh, hats off to that. I'm looking forward to that show. That uh, That's going to be real interesting. And obviously, you look at the picture, he definitely played the part. He, he looks like, uh, you know, he look like bikers or whatever. But uh, that's going to be real interesting. I'm, I'm very, very anxious to hear that.
0: Uh, not, uh, not only play the part, they live the part. Darren C4, former Bay Ridger in the house. The 6-8 was probably where you wanted to be stationed. It was a great neighborhood back in the day. I remember Dades and Galetta patrolling around Fort Hamilton High School in 83-ish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that, that's uh, I, I, right around the time that uh, those guys were uh, – uh, I think Dades and Galetta hooked up a little later than that, but uh, Bay Ridge was a uh, – I used to call – the, the address was 333 65th Street, And I used to call it 333 Easy Street because going from a busy, busy squad in Coney Island for a lot of years. And then I wound up there, not by my own choice, but I wound up there and, uh, it was just a completely different, uh, mindset. It was a completely different atmosphere in Coney Island. We were catching homicides every few days, shootings all the time in Bay Ridge. There was a lot of domestic violence and, uh, lower level crimes and, uh, there was just so many restaurants there. And a few years, few years that I worked there, I must have gained 20, 25 pounds because <laughs> when we would be in Coney Island, we would be eating on the fly, they would call it. You know, we would run into Nathan's, grab a hot dog in between, going from a shooting to a stabbing. In Bay Ridge, it was like, all right, we would put the napkin on our collar, sit down on a restaurant, and have a full meal. And uh, it showed on the waistline after a couple of months.
0: You know, Phil, it was sort of funny. You know how they say like um – when your kids go to college they put on the freshman 15 or the freshman 20. yeah yeah i, I think the same thing could be said about the police department you put on your fifth your uh, rookie 15 or your rookie 20 and next thing you know that uniform that you wore in the academy you'll never fit in that again the the dress yeah. blues that you bought and now you're 20 25 pounds heavier I, I you know i i was pretty um you know i was pretty fortunate that when i retired i was real I was only 20 pounds heavier than i was in the academy i was 195 in the academy and when i retired i was 215 so that wasn't bad that's not a 27 years 20 pounds that's not so bad
1: <laughs> yeah i was about the same but i was always into working out and in Coney Island, we had the boardwalk so me and and uh, a sergeant that i worked with kevin butler we would go jogging uh, And jimmy luongo we would go jogging on the boardwalk so um uh, But when I went to the 6-8, I got there in 96. I got married in 97. I had my – I'm sorry, in 98. And I had my first daughter in 99. So that that 99 was the year that I gained all the weight because I had settled into Bay Ridge. I was working there in that squad for a while. And then, you know, my wife would be calling me when I was leaving work sometimes 1 o'clock in the morning. I feel like I have a cheeseburger and a chocolate malted. So actually if I got her one, I had to get one for myself. So all the weight that she gained on our first child, I put on a few myself. So uh, that, that happens. It's a phenomenon. It happens with the, the first year in college. It happens with the first pregnancy, uh, both, uh-huh. both the husband and wife gain weight, they say. So, when I look at, look, that-
0: look at Angie Yang bragging. I, I still fit my dress blues. God bless <laughs> Angie. Look for That's good, great. Girl, Angie. Girl. <laughs> I wish I could. Well, I, I I, might be able to squeeze into it. I don't know. But uh, the
1: pants, no. The, the pants, I think I was a 33 waist, 33 or 34. Now I'm like 36-ish. So. Whereas
0: Joe Murray tried to put on his bulletproof vest and it came just below his sternum. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there he is. Joe it, was, it was a bib
0: that only covered his, his upper chest. <laughs> yeah. I used Jay to love Murray. that you see these. See these cops wearing their vest, and you're like, dude, you better get a new vest, man. That's not even getting close to over your gut yeah. there, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty soon it's gonna be on your chin and be up so high. You know? <laughs> but Joe Murray, good man, we love Joe.
0: Joe, good to see you in the chat, Lieutenant Pete. Always great to see you guys.
1: Lieutenant so we're gonna Pete
0: talk a phone. little bit about, and we're not, we're not going to give up what the show is gonna be about. We're just gonna try to promote the show and talk about it, and of course, we're talking about. You know, fr- well, the, the book is Friends of the Family, uh, and it's, of course, the inside story of the mafia cops, Louis Ippolito and Steve Caracappa. And we, we've we done a couple of shows on this. And the last show we did with Tommy Days, we called it Part One. And one of the major, major players in this book, and we're going to talk about it on Wednesday night, is this uh, poor excuse for a human being, uh, Gaspipe Queso who was the person who actually hired Ippolito and Caracappa, put it, put him, them on his uh, payroll. He was, uh, I believe, a captain with the Lucchese crime family. So he was the one that paid them their salaries and uh, got them to do heinous things. Well, they did it on their own accord, but he was the one behind it as far as financing it.
1: You know, Billy, he actually had them on his payroll at one point. He was reluctant in the beginning when he was first approached by – Burton Kaplan about the mafia cops. Uh, his first response was, "If they would turn on their own badges, meaning the police department, he goes, they'll eventually turn on me too." So he didn't trust them. It took time, and when he was, uh, there was an attempted hit on his life. He was actually, Bill, you said he was a captain, but he was actually a boss of uh, of Lucchese family. Uh, and so when he, uh, there was an attempt on his life, he was desperate for information because he recognized one of the hitters. And uh, he needed information on uh, those guys to, to exact revenge. That's when uh, they really came on board in Polito and Caracappa. He used them for information. And we're going to go from where we left off was around 1986. course, this this scandal occurred over a long period of time. I mean, you know, they were uh, come on the job, uh, come on to the NYPD in 1969. They were eventually arrested in 2004 and convicted on all charges in 2006. Uh, so we're going to go through, we went through the beginning part of the story, which was from 69 to around 86. Uh, and we're going to really dissect and take apart. Obviously, Tommy Dades is the... Uh, the master of uh, this this uh, this subject since he was heavily involved in, in the investigation. He was one of the lead investigators along with Joe Ponzi and Michael Vecchione from the uh, Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, as well as various other agencies, FBI, DEA. So um, we're going to really take apart from what happened from where we left off around 86 all the way to the point where they are convicted. Uh, it's an unbelievable story. It's actually the... Uh, Largest scandal in the history of the NYPD. I mean, there were so many other scandals, um, but this was the one that takes uh, the cherry on the top of the cake because they were actually contract killers for the mob. They were on the payroll of gas pipe queso. So he was giving them a monthly stipend. And when they would do certain things, specifically murders, uh, they would uh, negotiate a, a, a bonus, so to speak. And a lot of times it would be $30,000, dollars $50,000. So uh, they were two dirtiest cops in NYPD history. Uh, Tommy uh, was instrumental in bringing them down. So I think we're going to have a great conversation uh, on Wednesday night it is, Bill, we're doing yeah, it? it's Wednesday, Wednesday night. Wednesday night, yeah. Wednesday Bruno Giovanni
0: Santini Jr. I love that name. Bruno Giovanni Santini Jr. When Gaspipe had Lou and Steve on the payroll, did that involve medical and dental coverage also, you think? Pension plan? Yeah, yeah, their pension plan was going to prison. That was their pension plan. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately death. But, uh, uh, Bruno, I like your sense of humor. That's great. No, I don't think the mob uh, includes a medical or dental plan.
1: Yeah, I, I got to make a comment about Bruno because I read uh, a comment that he put up. Uh, you put the banner up for the show and he threw a comment in there and, and he asked that he read in uh, in Eppolito's book that they threw a racket for him. We call it a racket. It was like a fundraiser. When he got in trouble in, uh, I believe it was around 83 or so, when he got in, uh, in trouble with the Rosario Gambino file being found uh, in in uh, Gambino's house, uh, they suspended him and they threw a racket for him. And he asked, uh, is it true that there were captains and inspectors at the uh, at the racket? We don't really know. We weren't there, uh, but uh, it's likely that it could have been uh you know, cops and sergeants and lieutenants, whatever. Uh, a lot of times if a guy gets in trouble and they know who he is, they'll either show up or they'll donate money. Uh, at the time that no one knew that he was, uh, as dirty as he was, I, I guess the street may have known, but the, uh, the hierarchy, the police department had no idea, uh, if they did, it wasn't, uh, public knowledge. So, uh, uh to answer that question, it could be that there was, we don't know for sure.
0: This is one of the, uh, actual hits that, uh, uh, a and Ippolito did. And I believe that um, it's alleged that the trigger man was uh, Steve Caricapa. And and um, uh, I'm
1: not sure about this one, Billy, but I know that they were actually pulled the trigger on uh, Eddie Leno, is a guy who I, I actually knew him from growing up in Gravesend. Uh, and then I was assigned in the 6-0 squad at the time that he was killed. I think it was around 91 or 92. But uh, uh, I didn't actually respond to the actual homicide scene. Uh, I responded, uh, you know, I came into work the next day and I saw the car and stuff. But they actually pulled the trigger on uh, on Eddie Lino. I'm not sure about that one, but save that picture. We'll, we'll run it past Tommy. and I'm sure I'll have a lot to say about it. Uh, you know, they were just outright uh, stone-cold murderers. Uh, The picture on the screen is uh,
0: Anthony Gaspipe Queso, and uh, one of the interesting things, and as you guys know, we did a show with uh, Sammy the Bull, and in one of Sammy the Bull's episodes, he talked to how a Gas Pipe Queso killed someone in his club. He actually shot someone to death in his club, and of course, they thought uh, it was going to cause a major rift between the two families because... You don't disrespect another made guy. I mean, obviously killing someone in any club is not a smart thing to do. But it was owned by Sammy the Bull. And they thought that this this guy Queso was a real a real dirtbag. He when he uh got one of the guys um that he thought that he supposedly put a hit on him, he shot the guy like thirteen or fourteen times, tortured him until he gave him all the information he wanted. So he was a real uh not nice guy. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah. Going back to what you just said, Billy, about uh, the fact that he killed someone in Sammy's club. It's a sure sign of disrespect. Obviously we're talking about killing. It's, it's very abhorrent. It's, it's disgusting. You know, no one, We should never promote uh, any kind of murder or anything. But when you lived in their world, in their life, it was a sign of disrespect that he would do something like that and bring heat down. You know, someone gets shot and killed in a club, whether what time, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon. Obviously, there's a chance that the police could get involved and people could wind up getting arrested. So it was a sign of disrespect. I think that's the point that Sammy was trying to make, that he shouldn't have did what he did. He's been described as a serial killer. And uh, that case you talked about uh, where he shot the guy 13 or 14 times and trying to exact information, that was Jimmy Heidel. And uh, if you look at the 60 Minutes interview, uh, Ed Bradley did a tremendous interview with him as well as Tommy Dades. Uh, you guys could look that up on the internet. But when you see the interview with Ed Bradley in Gaspipe, Pipe, uh, he pushes uh, caso on it and says, you know, because he, he starts out, he goes, yeah, I killed him. He goes, but I didn't torture him. He goes, you didn't torture him. How many times did you shoot him? I don't know, maybe five. He goes five or maybe 10. He goes, yeah, maybe 10. But if you see the the uh, the interview, you could see he was just a cold-blooded, stone-cold killer. Uh, he talks about uh, killing this guy. And he says he didn't torture him, but we find out that he actually did torture him. And uh, he's described as a serial killer. He's really just a maniac on wild. And, uh, you know, uh, check that out. That's interesting stuff. And we'll go through that on the episode, I'm sure. Absolutely. NYPD captain. That
0: hit was the wrong Nicky Guido. Yeah, we're going to get into that on Wednesday night in in much more depth. But thank you for your comment, NYPD Captain. Uh, Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. This is sort of an unscheduled show. Phil and I put it together today just to promote our shows going forward the next week. Uh, I miss doing these shows when I was just away for a few days. You get so attached to it, when you don't go on the air. You get like, oh, I got to get back, you know, and you get crazy. Hey, I'm an Isla Murata. Take it easy, you know, but uh, (laughs) folks, if you're not subscribed, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels and you see the folks in the green font. That is our YouTube family. And we have five different levels of our YouTube family and you can support us on that. Um, Great to see some of you guys, Joe Murray, Angie, uh, NYPD captain, Dawn Marie, always great to see you guys. Some of our mods that are out there, uh, you know, we need the mods. We get some of these psychos in the chat sometimes that uh, say some stupid things. But it's great to have you guys in the, in the mods also. So getting back to the, um, the mafia cops, uh, you know, and it's so great to have Tommy Dades on when we speak about this because he worked this case. And I don't think there's anyone else in the world that knows as much about this case as Tommy Dates. There's old Bruce Cutler, who was Gotti's attorney. Now, I wonder if most cops would hire Bruce Cutler or most people that are mob wannabes. He's known as a mob attorney. There's a, a Louis Polito. I think that's his daughter he's walking with in that picture. And then again, his uh, his his partner, Steve Caracappa. And there we go. Hitman in blue. It was thought to when this first came out, it was thought to be an impossibility that this could happen, but it did happen. And uh, there's documentation and there's all kinds of evidence uh, to put forth that this is 100% true. Billy?
1: Yeah. Uh, listen, I was on the job at the time that uh, Epolito and Cap were on the job. I met Epolito several times. Uh, he was like a clown, always joking around, making stories and, 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 you know, always trying to he always wanted an audience of people laughing. Um, you know, so when the first story hit about him uh, being involved in the hit on Eddie Lena, that was one of the things when they uh, debriefed Queso when he uh, tried to make a deal with the government uh, and his deal fell apart. They caught him in lies. They tore up his agreement. But they did, however, speak about some of the things uh, it was leaked, It was leaked to the press regarding, uh, you know, information that he had given. So when that story hit the newspapers, I think Ippolito and Carava- Caracap were already retired. They were already out in Vegas. And the general consensus around the detective bureau, especially in Brooklyn, where I worked, was that, are you insane? Are you crazy? Uh, these guys couldn't be killers. That's made up stuff. Uh, how could you believe an organized crime guy like Gas Pipe Queso? He's a psychotic uh, killer. So no one really wanted to believe it. And as time went on, I had conversation with Tommy and I I said to him, Tommy, could this be true? And he pulled me on the side and he had already been, you know, uh, investigating the case. This is years after it hit the papers. And uh, he said to me, Phil, if there's ever corroboration of other than gas pipe queso on what these two did, they're going to jail. And sure enough, that corroboration was actually done by Burton Kaplan and the Nicky Guido homicide that was just referenced by the captain, by NYPD captain, that was instrumental in, in breaking open the whole case. Obviously, there were a lot of other things, but one of the things that was really instrumental was that Burton Kaplan wouldn't flip. He was approached numerous times and he kept saying, no, no, no. And then eventually at one of the sit downs, and I don't want to talk too much about it because I want to save it for the show on Wednesday. uh, it was brought to his attention and he eventually uh, wound up flipping, but Tommy will have specific details about that. Um, I believe the, the picture you have on the screen now, I think that's the day that they were arrested in Las Vegas. Cause that's uh, their, uh, I guess their perp walk either in or out of uh, court. Uh, so yeah, uh, it spread over many, many years. Uh, they morphed into uh, hit men for the mob and, uh, I guess we're gonna hear the rest of the details when we have the show on Wednesday night.
0: Well, you know, many people have a mob attorney, but the, the police department has an attorney, uh, who's who's much tougher than uh, than Cutler, than Bruce Cutler. He's a former boxer, former NYPD police officer, and his name is Joe Murray. And there's his
1: Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he also is a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. And his email is joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, Billy, it's funny you brought up Cutler. What do you want from I, me? What
0: do you want from me? He's always saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I met Bruce Cutler years ago when I worked in the 7-0 uh, RIP unit, which is a robbery identification program. Uh, they Other guys in the team had locked up these guys that were um, organized crime uh, related. And Cutler showed up as their attorney. And I got to say the truth uh when there were no cameras around he was a gentleman with us he was very straightforward and you know we did the lineups they didn't get picked and his guys wound up walking away it was uh it was uh, somebody identified them but it turned out they didn't do it but uh he was pretty uh, cordial with us and listen when there's no cameras around he doesn't come across as uh that big tough mob attorney he was uh real uh you know real professional with us and uh I guess, uh, you know, that, uh, the camera, the little red light on the camera goes on and he becomes, you know, mob attorney, Bruce Cutler.
0: Yeah. Some people say, uh, you know, he never met a camera. He didn't like, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of attorneys are like that. We we've seen that with some of the cases we've covered on here, these attorneys can't stay off the damn air. They got to go on TV every minute. And you realize they're getting all of that free advertising, you know, and it's, uh, But then sometimes they step on their proverbial, you know what, and uh, say the wrong things. and uh, so You you know, Billy,
1: think about how stupid that is, that he hired Bruce Cutler to be his attorney at Polito. It's like, you know, you're trying to say you're not a mobster. You're not doing hits for the mob, but you hire a mob attorney. So that right there wasn't too sharp. I I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. He was never known to be a quiet fly on the radar guy, under the radar guy. He was always flamboyant and out there. You know, he walked into a room, he had to be telling jokes or, uh, you know, cracking, uh, you know, attacking bosses or whatever it was, you know, he was, and I did just think that that was really, you know, listen, they made a million mistakes, obviously. And, you know, you couldn't have picked anybody better than Bruce Cutler? I mean, who's known as... John oh, you know, Bruce,
0: Bruce Cutler, as you know, was a former Brooklyn district attorney. So he had all of the training, he had all the background. But, uh, you know, then he went the way of being a mob attorney. And uh, that's where his bread was buttered, as they say, you know.
1: Listen, he got his notoriety and fame defending John Gotti on on, on four or five trials already. So now you, you fast forward into... That was in the early 90s. Now you fast forward into the... 2000s you know 2004 is when the arrest and uh you know I, I think that just subconsciously you're going to see bruce cutler you're going to think of john Gotti, you're going to think of organized crime and you're going to think guilty you know so I, I don't think that uh that was a smart move if he had brains in his head he should have hired uh joe murray
0: joe murray bruce's father murray cutler was a detective and bruce worked in the brooklyn da yeah. for years so yeah. see that uh
1: I think well, that's I why think- he had respect for us when we dealt with him. He he mentioned that that his father was a retired detective and uh he worked in the Brooklyn DA's office. So he didn't he didn't try and uh you know throw his weight around with us. He was very, like I say, he was very cordial. But uh again, look at him in the media, you know, you, you if you Google his name, the first thing that's gonna pop up is uh, you know, John Gotti's attorney. So you
0: know, I wonder maybe Joe Murray can answer this. What do you what's it like if you're a mob attorney when you have to collect your fees from those guys? <laughs> Hey, I want a I want a twenty thousand dollar retainer. Uh, oh, okay. Two yeah, days yeah. later, a week later, I went through it. I need another fifteen.
1: What are they going to be like? Oh, okay. Oh, no, are they going to be like? What are you doing
0: with all that money, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> you, you know it's funny you say that because uh, I know a lot of attorneys, and I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, it's obvious, and, and it's like almost like a rumor. Uh, or, or just word, you know, uh, that's kind of kept behind closed doors that uh, a lot of the attorneys that represent these guys, they, it's difficult getting paid because, you know, uh, like you said, they, they, they don't want to pay full price for anything. So, you know, here they are in trouble. And, uh, you know, the lawyers, I mean, most lawyers, if you're going to trial, no matter what the case is, you're talking about a quarter of a million dollars in the federal system, you know, between private investigators and all the hours that they have to put in, you're talking big numbers. And, you know, some of these mob guys, they could be high-level mob guys, and they don't have that kind of money, you know. So they're, they're scratching the uh, bottom of the barrel trying to come up with the fees. So naturally, they you know, maybe they try to bully their way through the fee. Joe,
0: yeah. I'm going to give you some advice. And Michael Vecchioni you're also in the chat. This is how you get money from mob guys. You tell them to Venmo with me the money. <laughs> <laughs> Venmo or PayPal. And if they don't send it, you don't represent them. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Michael Vecchione, another uh, instrumental part of the uh, of the Mob Cops. I'm glad he's in there, Mike. Uh, just a little shout-out to Mike. Good man, good man. Great to see you.
0: Yeah, so, folks, again, so Tuesday night, we have Lou Veloz from um, Storefront Sting, a retired ATF agent with a tremendous story to tell. Wednesday night, Tommy Dades, uh, Friends of the Family, Mob co- Cops, part number two. We're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive. And then we have something pretty unusual on uh, on Thursday. And here it is right here. And it's a company called Conversus. And they make this um, device that reads a person's pupils. All of you um, professional interviewers and interrogators out there, um, you know that when people lie, their pupils constrict. Hard to see, though. You know, that's a hard thing to see. If you're trying to look into someone's eyes, the lighting or whatever. But this camera that they use reads it and can tell deception right away. So as they put on this ad, uh, turn into police off the cuff on Thursday, March 24th, for an eye-opening discussion with Conversa CEO Todd Mickelson. As he shared stories about eye detect, that's what the, co- the uh, device is called, is changing the way the world detects deception. Remember, the eyes don't lie. Now, I would think that in a human resources situation, uh, you can use this without um, a search warrant or without, if it's on the same vein as a lie detector test, you would either have to get consent from the individual or they would have to sign off. But in a human resources thing, and specifically they want police departments to use this you have no choice. You would sign off. You want the job? Sign off. We're going to use this right. is the device. We're going to use to interview you. And if you lie, it has the ability to read in your eyes, whether you're telling the truth or not. Think of how crazy that is. But I mean, obviously I don't think then we'll talk to the, the CEO of the company. I don't think that they could use this in an interrogation unless the defendant or the person being interviewed. So we CEO Todd Mickelson, Uh, agrees to it i would think it'd be the same level of suspicion as using a lie detector someone would have to agree uh to take the lie detector
1: yeah listen i'm all for any tools that will aid in investigation i mean we're into the uh you know uh the age of uh cameras everywhere uh facial recognition, plate readers, uh, spot shooter, which uh, determines uh, the exact location where a uh, a shot is being fired, where these cameras are, are placed in high crime areas. So listen, I think it's a great, uh, you know, the next page in uh, investigative tools. Uh, the research has obviously been done, and I'm interested to hear the exactness of it and uh, what kind of numbers, uh, you know, what kind of statistics they have on uh, how effective it is on reading uh, a person's eyes. And, you know, you made all the points, Bill, about the legality of it. I would think that a person would have to uh, submit to it, give permission, give consent to uh, be, you know, it's the same thing with a lie detector. And again, for it to be uh, administered in court, I don't think that's going to be, you know, uh, admitted in court. I don't think it'll be uh, something that can be you know, used in, 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 actual, uh, trials and in court. However, uh, a lot of times we use the tools of the lie detector is actually a written lie detector test where it's 20 questions and a person answers it and you can determine if there's deception or not. So there's, uh, this is just the next, uh, the next level in, uh, trying to, uh, determine if a person is lying or not. And I think in, uh, you know, in situations, let's say of theft or different things like that, or like you said, in, uh, human resources of uh, different companies that could probably be utilized. And uh, I guess we're going to find out. It sounds real interesting to me. We'll get to find out just how effective it really is. Well,
0: you know, Phil, in interview and interrogation, obviously the eyes are something that the interviewer interrogator looks at all the time. 100%. And a lot of deception is in the eyes. And you as an interviewer and investigator – You can read deception from body language, but specifically the eyes. But however, it is difficult to to actually gauge with the human eye uh, to see if someone's pupils are constricting to the point where you could say, oh, that's a telltale sign a person's lying. And conversely, when I don't know if you guys know this that are listening, when you're very happy and positive, your pupils get larger. I don't know if you guys knew that, but that's also true. I don't think this company will care about you getting happier or, uh, you know, more positive. They're looking for the pupils constricting for a sign of uh, not telling the truth.
1: One of the things I'm curious about is, is uh, this reader. I mean, does the person have to stay still and, you know, look into uh, whatever it is that's going to read the pupils, because a lot of times, and, and you you cited it right there in an interview and interrogation, uh, when you're talking about specific facts, you know, you're asking a person, you know, routine questions, pedigree information, they'll look you straight in the eye. Uh, however, when they're deceptive, a lot of times they'll look away, they'll look down. So I'm just wondering if uh, during questioning, if that uh, apparatus that's uh, going to look into person's pupil to read it if they have to actually be looking into it so I, it's going to be curious to uh, to see the uh, the details of this uh, this new technology
0: well this is the second time that I've heard eyes being used in a investigative capacity and number one of course is iris scan An iris scan is the highest level of security you can use to vet someone is who they are it's m- much more powerful than fingerprints even more powerful than DNA. An iris scan is like millions more times more accurate than DNA. So what the companies do, for example, high-level security, you got to go through a door where on the other side of that door is the code to the nuclear weapons. Obviously, they want to make sure that the person that's going through that door is who they say they are. So a camera reads their iris and comes back definitively. That's the right person.
1: That door is not open if it's not the right... No, it's not uh, opening. And that's attached to
0: the door mechanism that would... I'm just using a real extreme uh, example of that.
1: Well, I think that's a good comparison, though, Billy, because you you have something so technical it's so exact that it can read the iris of a person's eyes and now we're sort of uh you know going in a lateral direction to use that technology let's say to tell if a person's lying and telling the truth so i think that this is going to be like uh you know the way that dna has morphed now we're having lie detection is morphing and and uh it's evolving and going forward so it should be very interesting so we got a couple of good
0: comedians in the chat. Here's the second joke of the day, Mickey Mantle. So that's why when I look in the mirror and tell myself I'm still 21, my pupils disappear. I love it, Mickey Mantle. That's, that's pretty crazy. good, Mickey Mantle. I got I, the, p- Folks with the best jokes, I put them up on the screen. That's yeah. pretty good. I like that That one.
1: name, too. That's like my old-time hero growing up, <laughs> Mickey Mantle, old number seven. That was uh, – oh, God, that's a good one, though, Mickey Mantle. I love it. Excellent. Phil, final words. Final words. I just want to give, we gave a, a shout out to Morty, his family, uh, Mordecai Dushansky. Uh, uh, just God bless his family. Let him rest in peace. Uh, that was just a, a real, it's a real loss to law enforcement. Uh, you know, like I said, he fought terrorism all across the world. Um, I want to give another shout out to a good friend of mine. Michael Grimm is a former congressman. He was a Marine in Desert Storm. Uh, FBI agent he's now in the Ukraine he's a, a correspondent for Newsmax he wrote an article in today's post I sent him a text message he responded I told him I was going to mention him on the show we tried to load a picture uh, we'll probably get it on the next episode but Mike stay safe brother brother you're a good man. Watch your back there in Ukraine. Uh, he's taking real risk. Two Fox News reporters, actually it was a cameraman and a correspondent were just killed last week. Uh, the actual uh, person who was doing the reporting, I forget his name, but he was injured. So uh, everybody's got to watch their back over there. God bless Ukrainian people. Uh, hopefully this war ends just as we're speaking. It couldn't be uh, any more terrible. But Mike, shout out. God bless and stay safe, brother. And uh We'll hope to uh, maybe talk to you in the future, and uh, we're going to try and get that picture loaded on the next episode. Also,
0: folks, Jonathan Alperi, who we had on the show, is a war correspondent, a uh, photographer. We've had him on the show twice. He's in the thick of it in the Ukraine. I saw him loading up bags of sand and stuff, and he's he gets the most amazing photographs, but he he risks his life. He puts his life at risk to get these photos. So, folks, you heard us. You listened to the show Tuesday night. Lou Velose, Wednesday night, Tommy Dades. Thursday night, we're going to have that show about the uh, the iDetect with their CEO. So, folks, uh, till we see you on Tuesday night, have a great rest of your Sunday, and uh, hope to see you then.
1: Stay safe, everyone.
2: One episode just saying enough.